Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part one of The Immunity Code by Joel Green. Joel Green is founder of Veep Nutrition, and although he is not a doctor or not a PhD, he is very educated in the field of fitness and nutrition. I originally heard about Joel Green from Sim Land's podcast. I was very impressed by his level of knowledge, and I decided to give this book a try. The Immunity Code is all about learning to control your immune mechanisms to replicate the same physiologic states found in the leanest, healthiest, longest-lived humans, what he calls peak human physiology. In practice, this means using various techniques, hacks if you will, to replicate peak human physiology in your own body. This is not fitness, this is not bodybuilding, this is not weight loss, this is something new. Again, it's an immune-centric approach to health and aging. So in this episode, I'm going to do a lot of skipping around and highlight the key parts of this book. And I wanted to begin with the map, the map of peak human, which is chapter two. And this is where he starts talking about aging and the aging mechanisms. So a simple way to sh- think about aging is deterioration. Aging is deterioration. Generally speaking, aging is not any one thing. It's a number of interconnected things that seem to converge around immunity in his opinion. Aging is marked by a decrease in some things, but also an increase in other things. So what are some important things that decrease with age? Well, energy production declines, blood viscosity declines, circadian rhythm declines, our production of B vitamins decline, the membrane permeability and voltage signaling within your cells decline, mitochondrial number and efficiency decline, the levels of bifidobacterium in your gut decline, cell reserves of antioxidants decline, and different key proteins that regulate growth decline. So you see a large number of things that decline. At the same time, there are things that increase over time that also relate to aging. What are some of those things? Well, inflammatory macrophages increase, blood coagulation increases, DNA damage increase, levels of free radical increase, errors when reading the DNA and copying it, that also increases, inflammatory signals also increase, and immune cell receptors fueling inflammation also increase. So you can see a theme in this first kind of couple pages is that aging is a deterioration, but it's not just one thing that's going on. So he says in bold here, stop believing aging is due to one thing because it's not. Now, there are different aging and longevity researchers who would argue differently, namely David Sinclair. So just this past week, David Sinclair put out a extremely long paper and he he stated that aging is, of course, related to one thing. This is in his health span book that I covered, and it's that the aging process comes from the loss of information. And I'll go ahead and link his paper in the description below if you want to read more about it. Or if you want to listen to my health span book, or sorry, lifespan book by David Sinclair, I did uh, three or four episodes on that if you wanted to listen to that as well. But again, from Joel Green's perspective, this is not one thing that's causing aging is multiple things. And the real thesis of his book is the immunity in aging. So the crux variable hidden in plain sight. In many ways, aging is biochemically identical to an injury. Let's say you get injured. He's saying aging is very similar to an injury in your body. Many of the exact same mechanisms kick in to deal with both. 
A new way to look at aging is to view it as a problem of immunity. The immune system is doing the exact same thing it would do with a localized energy, injury, but across the entire body. And of course, this is where the whole inflammation comes in. So inflammation is inflammation and aging. Mark Hyman uses this word a lot. And it is the new word for when inflammation accelerates the aging process. And he has a whole section here talking about when inflammation acts like a virus. So inflammation or inflammation is the idea that signals from inflammation essentially act like a virus and drive the aging process. So here's how it works. First, we get an accrual of junk. So as we age, cellular junk along with cells that no longer divide begin to increase. At the same time, a number of very important maintenance functions decrease. The inflammatory signal noise from the cellular junk is interpreted by your body's defenses as a system-wide injury. So this, of course, I'm talking about the whole accumulation of senescent cells in the autophagy process. We know the maintenance functions like autophagy begin to decrease as we age, but we also get a more inflammatory noise from these senescent cells that accumulate. Then he has this quote-unquote, the blood catches fire. So the blood is the transport system for a lot of the inflammatory signals. And with age, blood itself becomes a a pro-inflammatory medium. He then goes into the telomere length exposed section. So returning to the idea that aging is one thing, there are many theories as to why we age. There's one he mentions here called called the remodeling theory. The remodeling theory is an immune-centric theory of aging that says our immune system makes trade-offs in aging. So the theory is our body's balance immunity defense versus declining self-function. The immune defense of older population become overworked trying to repair increasing populations of cells that have issues. This is the remodeling theory. And he also has more information about the telomere length driving theory. So shortening telomeres, the end caps of our DNA, is one of the hallmarks of aging. But he notes a 2015 study in the Journal of E-Biomedicine on populations living longer than 100 years of age in Japan. This study demonstrates that inflammation has much more power, much, a much more powerful effect on the aging process than telomere length does. In very long-lived individuals, telomere length has far less of an impact on aging than inflammation does. So when you look at all these diseases that are killing Americans, it's heart disease, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's. In some way or another, inflammation has a, has a role in all these different diseases. And it drives each of these different diseases. So the, the, the theme of this book is, how can we reduce inflammation? How can we reduce the system-wide injury to our body that is inflammation? And he has a key focus in this book is the quote-unquote switchability or acquirability of different defense mechanisms that really halt the inflammatory process via controlling immune-centric mechanisms. So like most other places, he begins in the gut. So the gut microbiome, and by the way, Joel Green has been talking about the gut microbiome long, long before it became popular. He's been talking about the importance of the gut microbiome decades and decades ago. And there's some validation finally coming out in the in the papers showing the importance of the gut microbiome. 
And at the top of the list was the gut lining, and here's why. The largest concentration of macrophages in the entire body is in the gut lining, just below the cells that line the gut. This layer is called the lamina propria. Generally speaking, immunity begins where the inner body meets the outer world. This, of course, is the G GI tract or gut microbe, microbiome. When the gut lining is worn down and damaged, cell fragments of bacteria, they are called lipopolysaccharides or LPS, they begin to penetrate into the lamina propria where the macrophages reside. And when the outer world penetrates into the macrophage defense layer, it is an injury. So it's an injury to our cells and our gut lining. This injury, like all other injuries, causes an immune reaction. We get hyperactivation of different cytokines like IL-6, IL-1 that cause the inflammatory response to help defend against these lipopolysaccharides. So the question is, what should you do? How do you prevent this injury and prevent the inflammatory reaction from reaching the gut? Well, obviously, the first thing you should do is prevent the injury and stop eating things that cause damage to the gut lining. These are things like sugar and gluten. This stuff damage the epithelial lining in your GI tract and cause translocation of different viruses and lipopolysaccharides that end up causing massive amounts of inflammation in your body. The second obvious thing you can do is build up a defense layer in the gut. You really want to strengthen the barrier in your gut lining and you want to flourish the good bacteria. So these are namely bifidobacteria and acromantia municophilia. These are the two extremely important gut microbiomes that will help build up the defense layer in your gut. So how do you build up bifidobacterium and acromantia? In other previous podcasts, I mentioned how you could do so. But again, one of the best ways is to eat high amounts of polyphenols. So these are our fruits and vegetables. You can eat a lot of fiber, a lot of different fermented foods, and also a lot of resistant starches. So these are the best ways to build up that, that defense mechanism in your gut and flourish the good bacteria, the bifidobacteria and acromantia. Now, I just wanted to move forward, and he has this whole map of peak human performance. So different things you can do besides, you know, this gut lining. So I mentioned the high levels of acromantia and high levels of bifidobacterium in the gut. High levels of the metabolite butyrate are also beneficial. High levels of anti-inflammatory macrophages in the body. Low levels of body fat. High levels of protein found in young blood low levels of blood clumping protein fibrinogen, regulation, uh, regular activation of the AMP kinase pathway, low levels of the immune cell receptor CD38, high levels of NAD. Again, I'm going to be getting into all these a little bit later, but these are all things you can do for your, um, you know, a certain map of human performance, peak human performance, ways to reduce inflammation. Having high levels of melatonin in your body, again, he has this whole list here, and we're going to be getting into these in detail. But for now, I wanted to move forward into the next part of the book. And in this next part, he talks about the different types of genomes that we have in our body. So the three different types of genomes. This is chapter six. Your body is not run solely by your human genome. The reality is your body has three separate and distinct genomes. So the old thinking was 
the human genome runs you, the new thinking is three genomes actually run you. So what are these three genomes? The first, of course, is the human genome. That's our 30,000 genes that are creating proteins that are doing its function. You also have the gut bacterial genome. This is our microbiome. And you also have the mitochondrial genome. So if you didn't know, your mitochondria, which are found in all the cells in your body except red blood cells, they have its own genome. They have 37 genes, and a lot of those genes are made for the oxidative phosphorylation process. And a lot of those genes are also made for the tRNA and rRNA that help make the proteins. So your mitochondria, they are kind of self-functioning. They have their own genes, and they do a lot more than the ATP production, which I talked about. Um, but just remember that the, the mitochondrial genome is a separate own genome, distinct from the human genome. There's also, again, the collective genome of your gut bacteria. This is the quote-unquote microbiome. And there's a lot of crosstalk between our gut microbiome and our own genes. And again, I did a whole podcast on the... Uh, Emmer and Mayer did a whole book that I did a podcast on, if you want to check that out, where I go into detail about the gut microbiome. But basically, the bacterial genome in the gut influences and talks to the mitochondrial genome. And the mitochondrial genes have been co correlated to specific profiles of gut bacteria. And specific bacteria species also activate several human genes involved with inflammation and different forms of like, like cancer development. And there's a huge influence between our gut microbiome and the development of you know, certain diseases along with cancer and diabetes and possibly you know, autism spectrum disorder or, or the, uh, you know, neurodegenerative diseases. So there's this huge link. And again, a lot more research needs to be done. But the key idea is that the current biological state is defined by the interaction of these three genomes. And he has this cool little section called from concept to practical application, how, again, we can have this crosstalk between our mitochondrial genome, our gut bacteria or microbiome, and our human genome. And he talks about how you can actually train digestion of carbs in your body. So the, the belief is that we have issues with many foods because our DNA lacks the enzymes. We need to digest them. And this, is, of course, is true. You know, as we get older, the activity of lactase begins to decrease. We all become lactose intolerant as we get older. And what's the action? We tend to avoid a lot of these carbs. I tend to avoid, avoid a lot of the milk products. And again, he says here that you can simply acquire the genes needed to digest them. So he talks about a paper in 2017, and it talks about the non-celiac gluten intolerance and how it's linked to a particular dysbiosis or unhealthy gut bacteria. And we see low amounts of butyrate producing bacteria like again, bifidobacteria and uh, firmicutes, these are different gut bacteria that produce butyrate. And these low levels of butyrate cause or tend to be associated with certain gluten intolerance. So he's using this as an example of how, you know, our gut microbiome, it definitely interacts with our human genome. And there are ways to flourish, again, the good bacteria in your gut to help produce butyrate and to help produce a lot of these GLPs and a lot of these beneficial enzymes and hormones that that make us age less and make us more healthy. So that was just the example. Um, 
But for now, I'm gonna be moving way ahead to the next section. And if I can find it. So the problem of how humans really eat, this is, this is chapter 10. And he talks about, you know, the, the survival mechanisms of starvation. So the one nutritional constant shared by all mammals across all history is feast and famine. Now, this obviously is not true nowadays. There is rarely someone in the United States who undergoes famine because of the abundance of food here. But mammals, you included, have some very powerful genetic programming and mechanisms in place to deal with both famine and feasting. So it is kind of ingrained in our genes through evolution, the idea of living both in a famine state and also a feast state. Several hormones controlling food intake hyperactivate from starvation. The most important, of course, is leptin. I've talked about leptin multiple times. After star starvation, circulating levels of leptin are lowered, together with the hunger hormone peptide YY or PYY. What drives lower leptin are shrunken fat cells and changes in gut bacteria. The result is you tend to eat more. Simultaneously after starvation, sensitivity for the other hormone, you would guess it, ghrelin, skyrockets. So leptin goes down, ghrelin increases. The net is that you tend to eat more and it's harder to feel full. So this is the vicious cycle here. You're, you undergo starvation, right? You lose weight, your fat cells shrink, you get lower circulating leptin levels and higher amounts of ghrelin sensitivity. You tend to eat more and it's also harder to get full. And again, the culprit really is the shrinking fat cells, which I'm going to get into in great detail in the next episode. And he has this section called the food pleasure problem. So food tastes better after starvation or fat loss. This is a fact. If you've ever come off a 36-hour fast, you know what I'm talking about. The food just tastes different. It tastes a lot better. And of course, this is a big problem because the perceived reward for food is amplified by food deprivation and also further amplified by reducing fat cells. So increased food pleasure after starvation is a crucial survival mechanism. It ensures you are hyper-motivated to eat, which ensures that you will survive. So the name of the game is survival. Science has revealed a portion of the brain called the arcuate nucleus. This area is located in our hypothalamus. And this is the brain's pleasure center for food. If you've ever done a long hike or, and then you finally ate something, the food was, you know, mind-boggling. It was so good because of, uh, again, these signals in your, in your brain, in your hypothalamus. This is the arcuate nucleus in action. When you lose fat, signals from the arcuate nucleus drive up pleasure from food. Hyperactivation of the arcuate nucleus is likely is like a points card, he says. So after starvation, food pleasure gets quadruple reward points. So this is kind of how it happens. And again, if you've done a marathon and you eat right after or you come, you're coming off fast, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, the last section is the energy gap problem. So starvation or losing body fat has an inherent problem. The body now needs less energy. At the same time, food intake goes up. You burn less, you eat more. This is called the energy gap, quote-unquote energy gap. So reducing calories will reduce your resting metabolic rate. At the same time, decreased leptin from shrinking fat cells makes you eat more. The drive to eat more 
promotes eating ad libitum or simply eating whatever. And this energy gap really explains why caloric reduction-based fat loss always fails long-term. So again, weight, weight loss, weight gain, so much more complicated than calories in, calories out. There's a lot of neuronal, neurohormonal things going on. There's a lot of genetic things going on. There's stuff going on in the microbiome. It is very complicated. And again, the culprit, he says here, is the shrinking fat cells. And in next episode, I discuss all about the fat loss, fat cells, leptin. I go into the real fun stuff, the stuff that I'm really passionate about. This is stuff like autophagy, AMP kinase, cell signaling, NAD. All this stuff I get into in episode two. So I'm going to end the podcast here. I hope you learned something. And again, this is sort of the intro of the book. I get into the nitty gritty details in part two and part three. So I hope you stick around and listen to those episodes, which in my opinion will be more exciting. I felt like in this episode, I did a lot of skipping around and I tried to just find the highlights of this book. But in the next couple episodes, I will definitely slow down. I'll be more specific when it comes to talking about these stuff. And again, these topics are going to be a lot more interesting. So thank you for listening. And I hope you tune into part two of the Immunity Code by Joel Green.